The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Clean Coders Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week I'm talking to Jonathan Oliver. Jonathan, do you want to say hello? Hello, how's it going? Are you stuck at home climbing the walls when you should be hanging out with the community at the latest conference to get canceled? Are you wondering where to hear your JavaScript heroes like Amy Knight and Douglas Crockford and Chris Heilman? After the cancellations, I decided to put on a JavaScript conference for you online. I invited my favorite folks from around the web and got them to come speak at an online event just for you. Go to jsremoteconf.com and check out our speakers and schedule. The conference is on May 14th and 15th. The call for proposals is open until March 31st. Come join us at an online conference that we guarantee will keep you safe and keep you informed. jsremoteconf.com. We're kind of stuck at home. I'm going to do a little update for our listeners. We did this before and the uh, recording did not take. A little bit of contrast though between where we were then and where we are now because when we did it before we were in person at a Cafe Rio restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now nobody's going to restaurants. So not right now, even if I wanted to, I don't think I could go to a restaurant. I, I guess takeout and stuff, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, they've all closed their doors. It's interesting too, driving through town and seeing all the places that weren't on DoorDash or something, right? They have mm-hmm. a sign out that says, here's our number. We do takeout now. So. Yeah, absolutely. Now, DoorDash and just getting getting hooked up with that, that's going to make things a lot easier for them. But it is amazing how fast businesses have adapted to that, at least as the, you know, the restaurant industry, the ones that are that are trying to stay open. They're like, hey, we can we can accommodate. So that's good. Yeah. So usually I start out, and I think we did this last time with the series that you did for Clean Coders. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that and how that came about? Absolutely. So gosh, 2015, this is about five years ago. So yeah, April 2015-ish, we were having an event for some of our customers. We, we called it our customer appreciation event. It was a, an event in Las Vegas. And long story short, we had one customer drop out at the last moment. So we we kind of thought about it for a minute. We're like, well, we have this value. We have this ticket. We have all this stuff. What do we want to do? And so us as software developers in the organization said, well, what if we give it to one of our one of the software developers that we really enjoyed listening to and have derived a lot of value from? So that's where we reached out to Robert Martin, aka Uncle Bob, and uh, he accepted and came out to the event. And it was it was phenomenal. But uh, as a part of that, though, was he wanted he felt like he wanted to give something back. So he said, "Hey, what if I came to your guys's office there in Utah? He's based in Chicago. And what if yep. he came to our office there here in Utah and offered us some training?" We said, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to because we, you know, we've been reading his books for years and years and following his blog posts across half a dis- half a dozen different blogging platforms. And so he came out and did a two day on site in person training. And uh, after that, we we really hit it off. We were talking about how we had switched recently from C sharp.net to a newer language at the time called Go. Fairly, fairly new at the time. It was an early 1.0 type release. Actually, I think we had switched to that maybe 2013 or thereabouts. In any case, he he was very intrigued with that. And then not long after, maybe it was about a year or so after the event took place in the training and so forth, he says, hey, I'm interested in doing a series on Go. And would you guys be interested in helping me film that? And we said, absolutely, we'd love that. 
But uh, so as part of this, so then he he came out uh, and we were super excited because like here we're going to not just like learn from Uncle Bob. We're actually going to like pair program with them, which we were again, this is going to be a, a great opportunity. He sat down, got all his film equipment and everything set up with the crew there. And and then he said, OK, what do you want to code? And we had a couple of ideas we thought of, but we basically were like, well, we were kind of hoping you had some ideas of things you wanted to code before we pull out stuff from our pocket and uh, he said, no, actually, I kind of, I'm more interested in your guys' stuff. And uh, when it was all said and done, it was us pair programming with him behind the camera, so to speak. He was, he was sitting there uh, kind of laughing hysterically as we would introduce bugs into the code. And he would see that in the code. Uh, and of course, not being on camera, he didn't want to say anything. And he would just watch us struggle mightily on little little bits and pieces of the code <laughs> that we would. Uh, and, he, and he saw exactly where he's like, oh, there's a greater than equals problem right there. Or there's a plus plus versus a minus minus or whatever the thing was, right? And he was just, I mean, it was just so funny. Out of a corner of my eye, he's just rolling on the floor practically at, at most parts during the filming. But yeah, he was. It, it was just a great opportunity to be able to interact with him again very closely and he had originally scheduled, I think, three full days of filming. I think this thing ended up being like 12 sessions. He likes to kind of break them up into these mm-hmm. but uh, these little consumable snippets, uh, episode one, two, three, all the way through, I think, number 12. And uh, it was three full days of filming is what was scheduled. Uh, but because we were very experienced TDD practitioners, it ended up being roughly two and a half days to where they they could actually cancel their uh, overnight reservations and and change their flight for that same day and so right toward the end you know we were getting down to the wire we're getting we're going to get this thing done we're code 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 and it all came together we had maybe 20 minutes to spare in this now condensed we thought we had three full days like i said but he wanted to finish by i don't know one o'clock in the afternoon something like that and so we were we were flying through the code and i think that's where the title now go with intensity comes from is that that last like full or half day, I should say, where we were going pretty, pretty intently in the code and just really trying to get that thing wrapped up for them. Nice. I think I also remember you telling me when we were talking that you took him up to Snowbird. Was that at the same time? Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, so uh, in the 2015, when he first came out to visit us, so we live, you know, we're based out of Utah and the Agile Manifesto was created in 2001, let's see, would have been uh, February. Yeah, that sounds right. February 11th through the 13th, they rented a room up at Snowbird. There was uh, an individual that that was one of the signers of the manifesto that lived here in this area, and he organized it. So you've got Kent Beck and Robert Martin and uh, Martin Fowler and others uh, that that came out. They all flew out here to Utah, and so so now fast forward 2015. We meet him at the airport. Actually, he didn't know what we looked like. So we uh, we printed little signs. Instead of saying Robert Martin on it, we printed three uh, three little signs that, that three of us held. It was red. One sign said red. Another sign said green. The next sign said refactor. Um, <laughs> so he comes, he comes out of the gate there at the airport, and he sees that, and he laughs. And I think he snapped a photo of it. Uh, but we took him to – we're like, well, he's here in Utah. He hasn't been back – I mean, he may have been back for other trainings, but he hasn't been back to Snowbird since. So we drove up to Snowbird, not too mm-hmm. far away. And uh, took him back to the original room where the uh, Agile Manifesto was conceived and, and, and uh, hammered out and then ultimately ratified, signed, and then published. Uh, and he said he hadn't been back. That was then at that point 14 years. So we yeah, took him up there, just had a, a great time. He wrote it all on the board again. And yeah, we snapped a couple photos. It's just, it's so cool. Just that like, 
that nostalgia thing. In our previous interview uh, at Cafe Rio that you had alluded to, we had talked about the potential of doing some kind of like agile manifesto 20th anniversary reunion thing. Still not sure with all of the coronavirus and all of these developer conferences getting shut down and so forth. We want to do that, but we're still not sure if that's actually a thing that's gonna that we that we legitimately should undertake because the risks are pretty high for conferences at this stage. In any case, uh, yeah, we, we're, we'd love to get that, the Agile uh, signers back together in some capacity at some point in the, in the near future and, and have them talk about what's changed since. What's, what's Not even what's changed, like what's stayed the same for the most part, but what things would they have clarified that, that what, what are the takeaways that people have from the manifesto, like what are they, what are they getting wrong when they read the document, what are they misinterpreting mm-hmm. um, from the document? Because the moment you put something out there, there's now levels of interpretation, and it always takes the original, the original intent doctrine, let's call it, uh, of the of the signers to really clarify. Here's what they were trying to achieve. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting conversation to have, and and I've met several people who signed it. We've had some of them on the podcasts. I've gotten to know uh, Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt, pragmatic yeah, yeah. programmers, fairly well. Great. Had several conversations with Kent Beck, and yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, each of them at different times have expressed that Agile, as it's conceived now, is not exactly what they had in mind when they were hashing it out. When I interviewed Bob Martin for this show, we had a conversation about his book Clean Agile, and mm-hmm. it was really interesting just to kind of get his take on what agile is and how he sees that and you know how he practices it and stuff like that so i encourage people to go check that out yeah um, any, any of his works again clean clean architecture clean code the clean coder clean agile all excellent works yep so yeah so it's it's just interesting hopefully we can pull that off i'd love to be involved even if i can just come sit in the back of the room mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah watch no, right we're, we're we were debating it's like well do we want to do like a small developer conference maybe just a few hundred people or do we want to go all out and be like you know a, a thousand or something like that and uh, you know i'm i i run software i write software right. i'm not a, I'm not a co- like running a conference is a different beast and so it's like we need to get involved with different like uh, event yeah. planning type uh, agencies that could help help us pull this thing off because there's so much I don't know I don't know. Yeah, it's also possible, you know, given the current state of things that exactly we could bring in basically any of the signers that want to come and then just set things up so that we create a virtual environment that looks somewhat oh. like what they had. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. just talk through the different parts of it and just let people get involved virtually. It's it's funny. So being back, it's, I was at Snowbird here like about a month ago, just kind of looking at the venue and so forth. I have a I have a new respect for that for the signers of that document because the room that they were in at Snowbird is it's this little hole in the wall. It's just this cheap whatever. It holds like ten people comfortably you know, not even much standing room, maybe like, you know, 20 people is pushing it. And the the way the windows are, like the sun comes in and it heats up fast, even in the winter and there's no air conditioning. And like, like we were in that room and it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and it was 80 something degrees in that room uh-huh. in February. And I'm like, this is, it should have been like, you know, 60 or 50 or something like that. It was very uncomfortable, uncomfortably hot. I'm like, wow. So, you know, that room is just, it's it's very much a ceremonial type like reminiscence, but in terms of using it on a, on a practical level, no, we wouldn't do that. 
yeah. just because it's it's too small and too hot and you know like maybe get your picture with the guys or something like that yeah but that's, you know that's it we can sit here and daydream about this all day but it does sound like a fun event oh absolutely i, I i'm still looking at for how we can how we can pull this thing off and make it yeah. make it work and you know maybe it is a virtual conference i i don't like that idea because there really is something about yeah. being in the same room with these individuals. There's a, there's an electricity, there's an energy that you derive from being with individuals, other individuals that are you know very influential. You just you can you can feel that, and it starts to it affects yeah. you in a different way. Yep, absolutely. I've been putting on virtual conferences. I'll just shout that out too. Anyway, it's interesting to talk through this and talk through agile and TDD and some of these practices. One thing that I'm curious about is you mentioned during the video series that, you know, you're kind of old hat at TDD and things like that, you know, very practiced, very comfortable with the process. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've run into with a lot of the teams that I've worked on is even just getting the practice of testing at all, especially in a team environment where it's like, Mm -hmm. look, everybody has to write tests. It's tough, right? I mean, on some teams, we got some success because we put together a, a continuous integration server. Yeah, and yeah. We, we kind of, you know, we, we put it front and center so that everybody could see, hey, you wrote code and the test coverage went down or something. Or, you know, well, you wrote code and something broke. But yeah, you know, how, how, how do you create that, that culture in your environment? Oh, to boy. This is, yeah, this practices? is a big question here. Um, so let's start with this. What usually happens within an organization is that people are working, hopefully, in branches. And at some point, they want to merge those branches together back into master. And one of the pain points that you run into is that like, you know, you've been working on your branch for, you know, a few days and you go to merge it and it's, it's kind of, it can be kind of painful to mm-hmm. do that process. And, and what's really interesting about that is that you want to defer that pain. You would say, well, I want to, I want to try to not feel that pain. So you start to put it off longer and longer. And, and inevitably what happens is let's say you have a number of individuals working in there, not merging their code very often. So then you spend you know, a, a good portion of a Friday. Hey, Fridays is merge day. We're going to merge on Fridays. And well, no, seriously, this is a thing. That sounds uh, like a terrible idea. Well, I no, like no, my weekends. Is, let's follow the logic because this is what happens. And so you, you have a merge like half day Friday, but it ends up taking a little bit longer than half day on yeah. Friday. So then you, what you do is you, hey, let's start to dedicate. Let's just spend all day merging on Friday. But we, you start to spread it out like, hey, every seven or eight days we'll merge and we'll take all day Friday. And and then uh, inevitably what happens is, uh, okay, well, it starts to take more than a Friday. And so let's, let's every two weeks we'll, we'll do our merge. And, uh, and, and, and yeah, no, no, this is, I, I've seen organizations that do this. And I'm like, oh yeah, I have too. It's, yeah, we're laughing because it's true. And so the solution to this is go the opposite direction, and that is to merge very frequently. In other words, you make a commit, your tests pass, you merge, you keep going. You make it so that the things that are painful, you do them so often that they're no longer painful. One of the things we're doing organizationally, and we've been doing this for a few months now, we've been doing something known as mob programming, which is essentially take take pair programming and add in at least one other individual. So three on a minimum, uh, but three or four, sometimes even five or six. You have one individual at the keyboard that's quote unquote driving and uh, they're, they're, they're an intelligent input device. They can take an expression or a thought and you'd say, so for example, like extract this interface and they would take that concept and perform that function on the keyboard. 
And then you have other individuals that are called navigators uh, mm -hmm. that will then help kind of like, here's where we want the code to go. But we've been doing mob programming now for, uh, gosh, six plus months at least in, in various forms. I would say six plus months more, more uniformly throughout the organization, but even a little bit longer in different pockets in the organization. What's ironic about this is we've had now this, uh, this coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, work from home kind of a situation. And we're working pretty much the same way. There's one person on the keyboard and we're all watching the, on the screen making comments. So it's, it's funny because I thought we, it would be a much more profound uh, negative effect on our productivity. If anything, things have been more productive. That's, I know that sounds odd, but like things have been at least as productive as they were before. Mm -hmm. um, so we've had very little negative impact in terms of productivity. Now, coming back to your original question, which was how do you institute TDD and test-driven programming within an organization? It really comes down to, I think, legacy code. Any, any code that you write, this is going to sound, this is kind of an extreme statement, but any code you write without tests is automatically legacy code because come back to it a month later and you're like, what was I thinking? What was I doing in this code? It's, it's, uh, Isn't that Michael has, Feathers' definition? I believe so, actually. I, and I've read his book, uh, uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, uh, gosh, maybe seven or eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago now. I, I thought it was kind of extreme at the time. But ever since then, like any code that I've written without tests, I come back to it and I go, oh, this is awful. And it's just so hard to work with. It's so hard to like get it to change in a reliable way. So there's so much pain. And honestly, this is like... When you go to a new software gig at any new organization, let's say you're going from company A to company B, you know, you're going to inherit this like pile of heaping pile of garbage oftentimes because there's no tests. I mean, it, it, let's say it this way, the, the, the difference between a junior programmer and a senior programmer, junior programmer writes code for himself. A senior programmer writes code for other individuals, writes code for other people. And so if you want to be a craftsman, there is a, you, you have a responsibility to add or make your code inherently testable. And so that you can run the suite of tests and you can know, okay, this is good code. The code is functioning as intended, as expected. Now you mentioned a craftsman and, and that's something that kind of grew out of the agile development space. Did another interview for the same show with uh, Sandro Mancuso, who wrote the Software Craftsman book. And yeah, he talked a bit about professionalism. I'm curious then where you're, you know, where you feel like the the all of this kind of ties together, you know, with TDD and you know doing these good practices and professionalism and you know writing code for other people and things like that. Like, how does it all come together? At the end of the day, you know, the, it's really just the keystrokes on the keyboard. Meaning that's that's where the that's where like the the espoused principles that, that you have, you know, that you claim to espouse, let's say it that way. If, if you're not doing that while you're typing keystrokes on the keyboard, then we've got a, we've got a problem. If that, if that makes sense. So, you know, how does it all come together? Craftsmanship, TDD, let's say it this way, you know, who, who's discovering your bugs? Is it you or is it your customers? Um, mm. Customers discovering bugs is, is not a good thing. Um, it will happen, but are you doing that, it's almost a way of like, not my problem syndrome, I think. And this comes back to the craftsmanship side of like, well, 
I'm going to do this thing. It's not my problem. Uh, Toyota, they, they pioneered their engineering discipline. Uh, uh, they had actually purchased a, or I think it was a lease agreement. I don't remember the specifics. This is back in the 90s. They had leased uh, in Fremont a GM plant. It had originally been a GM plant, and there was a, an agreement with the union that was making the, the, the vehicles that they were going to make Toyota vehicles in this facility uh, where they were making, again, General Motors vehicles before they were going to make Toyota. And so here is the president of Toyota. It's the grandson of the founder. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Again, it ends with Toyota. This is his last mm-hmm. name. And, and, but the, the, the sacred thing at GM at the time was do not stop manufacturing, which means uh, do, not, do not stop the assembly line. Here's a car going through the assembly line. Do not stop. In other words, right. if you couldn't get that if, if the bolt was cross-threaded and you couldn't get it out and back in in time by the time it got out of your workspace, you had to mark it and it was somebody else's problem. All, and it would just do not stop the assembly line. And what would happen as a result of that was that these issues would be, uh, would be noted and then somebody else way later down the line, usually in post-manufacturing, would have to take the door apart, let's say, to get this bolt done properly and re-thread the thing and then put the door panel back on. And it never quite fit right because it was, it was always an afterthought. So here's Toyota. They come in. They've got their uh, total quality manufacturing process. Here's this poor... Um, you know, uh, General Motors uh, union worker, and and he's uh, it's the the car. And all of a sudden, the bolts cross threaded. He can't quite get it on right. He's using his power tools, and and they had been instructed pull. It's called pull the line to stop the uh, pull. There's a little cord they yank on to stop the uh, right. to stop the assembly line. And he'd been told, okay, if there's any problems, you stop it. And but there's so much social pressure to not. So here's this car going through it's cross thread the bolts cross threaded in the door can't quite get the thing on right and it's getting towards it so that the toyota ceo grandson of the founder toyota walks up and says you know pull the line pull the pull the lever pull the pull the cord right and and the guy's like shaking he's like no i can fix it i can get it i can get it no pull the cord pull the cord and he takes he he, the ceo guy takes the the worker's hand and puts it up on the cord and, and says okay let's pull this together boom pulls the cord assembly line stops the lights go on and this whole process was all about that quality, that it wasn't somebody else's problem, it was my problem, that I needed to take responsibility to fix that problem, rather than passing it down the line and letting somebody else deal with it. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot, actually. I know a lot of people that tested production, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's easier for them. them. Yeah, well, it is until your customers leave. But yeah, I, I really love that idea where, yeah, you're taking responsibility for your portion of the process and making sure that it gets done right. Absolutely. Well, it's not even, it's, it's, it's taking responsibility for your portion of the process, yep. but also, um, and, and uh, there's, there's a group here uh, in the Valley called Vital Smarts. They have a, a, some material called Crucial Conversations and so forth. Mm-hmm. They talk about this concept of uh, 200% accountability. I'm going to hold myself 100% accountable for what I do. And I'm also going to hold you 100% accountable for what you do. Um, and they, there's different tools and so forth that they, they talk about for how do I right. help individuals become accountable for what they're doing. So if someone else is causing you difficulty, oftentimes they may not even have a clue. And so you can go to them and say, hey, I want you to know, here's, here's what's going on. And this is, this is going to sound crazy. It's like to go to someone and say, hey, you're making my life difficult, but do it in a way that the outcome is actually successful. That's a couple of things, that, a couple of the techniques and, and the, the way of being toward other individuals to, to help them 
realize, hey, you're because often, oftentimes, like I said, the other individual may not even have a clue. And more often than not, they're going to be like, oh, wow, I'm really glad you told me that. Especially, um, especially the way that you approach them it has a very, you can have a very different outcome. It's like, hey, jerk, stop making my life hard versus, hey, we want to let you know when this thing happens, when you do A and B, this is what I have to do as a result of that. Is there any way we can work in a different way? And all of a sudden people go, oh yeah, let's talk about, they like, get into brainstorming mode. How can we work in a different way to make things better? It's funny you mentioned that they are located here because I had no idea. I've read all those books, the Crucial yeah, Conversations yeah. books. It's it's same way here. I, I read Crucial Conversations, uh, uh, Crucial Accountability, number. they have a few other books. Later on, it was a, a few years later, I finally like, started looking at the organization. I'm like, oh, wait, they're literally just down the road for me. Uh, yeah. How did I not know this? And then since then, I bumped into their founder, Joseph Granny. I, there's a couple of founders there, but Joseph's the mm-hmm. more the more visible of the bunch. And I bumped into him half a dozen times at different uh, functions and events in the area, which, and I'm like, Hey, Joseph, how's it going? He doesn't quite know my first name yet, but I think, I think uh, in the next couple of months, it will be on a first name <laughs> basis. So <laughs> yeah, keep working on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great, great guy. In fact, they're working on something right now, which I find phenomenal, which is uh, they have this, um, I think it's called a halfway house, uh, which is basically individuals that are, they would be, in, there'd be felons in prison but they have this kind of like program that they offer, which is they allow these individuals to be in this, this, they call it a school or a campus and they can start to learn life skills and social skills in a way to adapt back into modern society. And they have a very low rate of, uh, res- I don't even know how to say this. Recidivism. Word. Yeah. And, uh, but, but essentially like, I mean, it's called uh, the Other Side Academy, and they don't take any public funding, any private funding. They're completely self-funded, but they have this culture, and this is this is crazy. This is kind of what I go back to, where anyone can call out anyone else in that organization on anything, and the other person will receive it. And the way they approach each other, they actually are they 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 are kind of all out like in each other's face, yelling, but they've got this like way of being and way of working with each other to where. Each person will receive the feedback no matter how crazy. And I'm like, that is, that is insane. In any case, uh, just something worth, you know, like there are ways mm-hmm. of delivering feedback, but I think the, the thing that we're responsible for is how can I receive feedback? No matter how ill-intentioned, is there a kernel of truth in that feedback that I could benefit from? If there's something that would help me in that, in that negative feedback, if I can learn from it, benefit from it, and and be a better person, then it doesn't matter how bad their intention is. Yep. So yeah, that's again professionalism. Um, I think isn't just about approaching people in a certain way. It's about receiving feedback, no matter how much uh, how much it hurts. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. I want to kind of take this to the next level a little bit because, and then I'm going to ask this the way that I've had it asked of me because I'm curious what your response is. And that's like, it basically goes like this. Well, that's all great, but how do I get my team to do this? 
Yeah. Um, the, the best, so there, there's different places, uh, depends on your role in the organization, but let's start with this as a software developer, I have to do it myself on a minimum. I have to be doing the things that I, that I claim are beneficial. I'm so glad you went there because a lot of people wait for their boss to do it. No, 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 no. That's a victim mentality. Yes. Oh, when I will do this, when somebody else, like I will be happy. Bargaining. you know, so the it, you have to be a proactive. Uh, yeah. This is a Steve, Steve, uh, Stephen Covey Seven Habits kind of thing. You know, have it be be proactive, take initiative, take take responsibility for your life, your code, the things that you create. But uh, yeah, oh, I need my boss to be able. So there are ways that you can, as a, as a with with formal authority within an organization, you can try to mandate that. But even then, to get to get it into people's hearts and minds and their psyche, really. You really do have to be practicing this as a as a first class citizen. That I care about again the, the mm-hmm. quality of what I produce. I care that it actually delivers the value that that is expected. It, inevitably, there's going to be bugs. You know, even this morning I was working with a little bug in the, in the code, and uh, you know it was it was brought to my attention. You know, we had a whole suite of tests, and okay, there's a bug in the code. Okay, bam, add a test. You know, uh, fix the code, commit. A few minutes later, it's in production because we had this whole process in place. But yeah, you, you need to, on a minimum, do it yourself. And then are there like-minded individuals that, that see the value that you can um, work with more closely to start to kind of get that at least, and, and you know, hopefully it's with other members of your team and then start to practice that on a team level. And then there are other teams go, whoa, what's going on with this other team over there in the organization? Let's learn from them. Man, they're doing this thing and they're like the benefits they start to show, uh, they start to show pretty quick. Again, number of, if you start to track this stuff, number of bugs uh, in production and so forth, number of known issues, et cetera, et cetera. If you start to track this stuff, the metrics become pretty clear. Like, okay, we, we actually are delivering quality. Uh, you know, the, the argument is, oh, well, it's going to take twice as long. It's going to take longer. It does take a little bit longer, but we have this challenge where software is measured in how long it takes to create. Coming back to humans and biology, a child takes nine months to create, but how long to, to raise the child and so forth. So software running in production isn't done. It's, it's just useful now, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the life of the software begins, as it were, when it's now running in production. That's the place where like the, the maintenance burden and the, the, uh, the ability to craft it and mold it to adapting business realities such as, well, now everyone's going to work this way or I'm trying to think of different business scenarios where all of a sudden everyone has to work online. Anyway, if the software can adapt quickly to new business realities because of the suite of tests and so forth, that's where the value really shines, not necessarily just in the creation phase. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I really just, you know, backing up a little bit, uh, I really like the approach of, yeah, start doing it yourself, find other people you can recruit to start doing it with you. Hopefully you can then, you know, make a difference in the team you're in. What if you can't find any allies though? Like what if you can't find anybody that'll do it with you? Do you just give up? Well, it, that it's kind of like if, if North is North, does it, you know, like, does it matter what everyone else thinks? Uh, you know, if, if, well, if nobody else agrees with you and continues to work in the way that they're going to work, that's okay. Like you can't, you have literally have no control. 
So right. that's where that's where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to exercise this discipline because I know it's the right. Well, nobody else around me exercises ever. No, everyone eats this way and nobody ever exercises. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't mean that's the exact right way to do things. I mean, let let's, you know, if, if you believe that this is the right way to do it, then then keep going. Coming back to the impact on other other individuals, this kind of thing, I don't know. I, I've never seen it have a negative impact on other individuals. Like, let's exercise that craftsmanship and let's make good. Everyone that writes code wants to, they want to write yeah, good code. That's true. Uh, sometimes there's some business expediency. It's like, look, there's a business trade-off where the manager says, look, I need this right now. I And they explicitly tell you, I want no tests and so on and so forth. Uh, you have a bit of a moral dilemma there, I would say, um, because all of a sudden here's an individual that isn't, they're not the they're not the um, the one producing the it's it's I'm I'm trying to think of a, in construction okay yeah I need this uh, I need this building put up I want no structural tests I just needed to I just needed to work you know like and do you see how like absurd that is like uh, and I believe uh, Robert Martin talks about this as, as well it's like okay if even if they tell you don't write tests you still have a moral responsibility as a craftsman to write tests so yeah it's it's a it's a hard yeah. it's a hard ask but like. When do I go in and tell a person in sales how to do their job? Look, I just need you to, you know, lie through your teeth and just sell the product. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't tell sales individuals how to do their job because that's yeah. not my forte. No, and, and here's the other thing that's really cool about this. Let's say you are receiving tremendous pushback. You know, there, there's a question about the organization that you're with. So mm-hmm. people, oh, the organization, well, I can't, I can't lose my job. Your safety your safety is in your skill set. Your job security is in your skill set, not in the organization. And people right. conflate the two. They mix the two up. If the organization collapses because all of a sudden the government said, uh, because of this whole coronavirus thing, that you are no longer allowed to do this, that, and the other, and all, you know whatever, and all of a sudden your market is gone, your safety is in your ability to deliver value. And I believe that, that craftsmanship increases your ability to deliver value which then increases your value to any given organization. So if a particular organization that you have to that you happen to be working with at the moment is mandating that you work in a certain way, you know, exercise your individual initiative and personal responsibility and say, is this the kind of organization that I want to be attached to? Do you want to be attached to an organization that says, look, it's somebody else's problem? Or do you want to be attached right. to an organization that says, look, care about what you produce and it matters and do the best that you possibly can? That makes sense. Uh, I kind of want to circle back because what I was really asking is you're in charge of the development at Smarty Streets. Yes. So how do you as a leader in your organization make sure that this is happening at the levels that you control? Because it's one thing for me as an individual contributor to go in and do this. Eventually, I get tired of fighting the system because they don't want me doing this stuff even though it makes my job easier, it makes everyone else's job easier, et cetera, et cetera. It's another thing when you're the person hiring people and kind of setting the stage for mm-hmm. culture and things like that. So, so how do you create this going uh, the other way? Well, yeah, and, I, and I, I've got a unique advantage. You know, I'm a technical founder, and so I have the ability to assess individuals on a technical level. During the hiring process, we try to be very careful about that. You know, there's there's some different technical aspects, and we don't we don't even do like a traditional um, 
it's like, okay, here's a piece of paper during the hiring interview process that here's a piece of paper. And here's like, here, solve this thing using a big O notation and uh, try to build a hash map that, you know, it's like, what, what value does that actually have? You know, that's, those are all commodity. You know, <laughs> Put like, them in front of the whiteboard and every few minutes. The whiteboard and design, mm, you know, interesting. Like, yeah. Right. Okay. Whatever. But as a technical founder during the interview process, we actually have a multi-step process. First, first and foremost, the way we hire is very different in that we hire by referral. In other words, we say, hey, we're looking for someone who has a particular skill set. And then our, the individuals that our organization, there's about 40 of us or so, will reach out to our network of contacts and say, hey, we're looking to hire. And inevitably, that'll produce a handful of candidates with a, a particular skill set. So in other words, we're already, we're not hiring randomly in the sense of like, oh, it's just this like, random Joe, you don't know. We have, they, no one has any clue who is this individual. But then as part of that process, we'll assess again, just very simply their, their, their technical skills. But then above and beyond that, it's their disposition. What we're really after is, is this an individual that is eager to receive correction? That's, that's the, that is the skill. Because technical skills and abilities can be learned but uh, the fundamental attributes of an individual and their eagerness to adjust their efforts based on, uh, based on reality and based on uh, information that's presented to them, that's something that's much harder because uh, we've all worked with individuals that no, no matter the o- overwhelming evidence on a particular topic, they will hold the, their ground and say, no, no, no. Um, I'm gonna, you know, I, I'm gonna continually neg- to negatively impact individuals because it's not my problem. So our objective is to get individuals into the organization that are their disposition is to to receive information and to want that kind of thing. And, and not everyone's gonna do that on every topic 100% of the time. But overall, that's that's the objective. And again, I have the unique advantage of like, okay, here's, I kind of set that up from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, here and there, you know, you're going to have like, it, you're going to miss on certain, in certain things, but by and large, the culture is so overwhelmingly one way in terms of, again, wanting to adjust efforts based on feedback that uh, things become very easy to move and, and very moldable rather than rigid and, and inflexible and intolerant. I, I think it's interesting, and you've kind of alluded to this, you know, your, the way that you all work together, you're essentially selecting for people that will fit well into that system, right? You're not ruling people out just because for whatever reason you don't like them. It's because you're looking for that particular skill set that fits well with the way that you operate. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are individuals that are, you know, amazing programmers, but we we choose not to hire them simply because we've, we've as part of our assessment, we've de- determined that they are, they're going to be very dictatorial and my way or the highway and so forth. Right. And so we're like, and, and even like, you know, here's, here's my stance on, on test driven development and so forth and craftsmanship and I'm trying to instill those values. We've, we've gone that way, not because it's a dictatorial my way or the highway, but more because we've determined that this is the best way to work together you know, collectively. In fact, this actually originated, the the craftsmanship movement within the organization originated organically as a result of us as individuals, as individual software developers, realizing the impact we were having on others. And so we decided, okay, what are ways that we can work? You know, this goes back uh, more than a decade now. What are ways that we can work that help each other ourselves and help other individuals as a result of that? So that's where the craftsmanship and Uncle Bob, and I've been already looking at those things years and years ago, but, but just 
form the formal nature of it within the organization came about organically rather than a top-down imposition from myself. Yeah, well, and that's a very agile, going back to kind of the beginning of the conversation, it's a very agile way of looking at things, right? Is, okay, you know, what can we do to make this better, make our process better, make our software well, better? And actually to clarify the language, individuals and interactions over yeah. processes and tools. Yep. So it's less about the process and more about the individuals and how we can work together right. uh, in that dynamic environment. Right, exactly. So you come together and you say, we think that this will help us work together better, so we're going to try it, right? And so then you adopt some aspect of software craftsmanship. And then you try the next piece. And, oh, well, this didn't really work for us, but maybe if we do it this other way, right? And so you can, you adapt it to your situation and, you know, make sure that, yeah, it's enhancing the things on the left of the Agile Manifesto, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not that the other things are not important, yeah. it's just that they're less important. And so yeah, your processes you're, and tools are not unimportant, they're right. just less important. It's, it's the individuals and interactions over processes and tools it's working software over documentation right right um so it's like when when you have to make a trade-off you favor one versus the other yeah but processes are not inherently bad in fact um this is this is goes to um there's an individual um clayton christensen has written extensively on this um Mm -hmm. he's done a number of books uh, uh the innovator's dilemma in fact uh the the disrupt the word disruption is a term that he coined back in the '90s, and uh, he talks about organizational value comes about because of its resources, which are individuals and and uh, let's say cash and intellectual property, but also uh, comes about because of the way those individuals have worked together, such as processes. Processes are not bad, but what happens when an organization gets acquired, typically in software? is that it's purchased for its resources, the code base, the customer base, the whatever. And the, the, the problem with that is that it was the individuals and them the, the distinct way they worked together in that process that created the actual value. And here's the organization, let's say it's Google making the purchase. They try to, they try to integrate it into the organization and they lose the thing that actually was valuable. And then that software be, ceases to become interesting and, and, and useful because of the way that it was, that it was the way that it was created that, that derived the value. Man, this is so interesting. And, and it's, it's a place where I think a lot of folks struggle, especially in our industry, because what happens is, is you're the technical guy and then you become the top technical guy and then you get put into management, which doesn't always translate as far as skill sets go. And so then it's like, okay, how, how do I get everybody on board with this stuff? And how do I... You know, how do I make sure that, yeah, we're, we're interacting in ways that enable everybody to do the right thing? And yeah. yeah um, one, that's, a, uh, that's a competence hierarchy question. Like people that are good in this competency hierarchy does not, if you're good at one thing, does not make you automatically good at, at the same level at another thing. And I'm, oh, I'm really good at writing software. That is a completely different skill set from guiding individuals. Let's, let's go ahead and use the term managing people. Mm-hmm. Um, that has oftentimes a negative connotation, but interacting with people toward a successful outcome, that's a very different skill set. So one other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering about is you talked about the taking responsibility. So how do you instill a culture of responsibility? Yeah. Because um, it could seem kind of harsh, right? If, if you're coming down to somebody and you're saying, and we talked about crucial conversations and you, how to have those conversations, but at the end of the day, you know, how do you get people to take responsibility on their own without you having to have those awkward yeah, yeah. talks, right? 
Well, building a culture of self-accountability is the ultimate goal. And I think that's where I was headed. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't, I mean, holding people accountable is a, that's something that you don't want to do. Sometimes you have to, it just depends on that individual's level of initiative. That, that's a great question. How do you help individuals develop that concept of self-accountability? And this is where the culture of the organization can really help bring that out. As, as I talked about with, uh, the value of an organization, it comes about originally from its the individuals that are there as far as like how they work together, their, their, the code that's being produced. Ultimately, that transitions into processes and a way of working, but that way of working translates ultimately then into a culture. And the culture can help, can help drive a level of, of self-accountability or it can drive a level of finger pointing. There are ways of working together to where, let's say it this way, if, if I can create emotional safety within others to be able to express their thoughts. And this isn't anything to do with safe spaces. This is that an individual feels safe enough in in my presence to open up about things that are concerning to them. And I can establish that rapport over and over that can actually help that individual to start to do that in other circumstances that aren't inherently safe emotionally. And the ultimate goal here is to get individuals to where, myself included, to where I carry my safety with me. I carry it inside of me so that even if I'm in in the presence of an individual that is, let's say, derogatory and saying things that I don't like or I don't agree with, that I am, I still have that safety inside of me. I know I'm I'm comfortable enough with who I am that, that I can hear what they have to say without necessarily being I don't even want to use the term offended by it, but just I can hear what they have to say without being negatively affected by it. Like I can let them stand Mm -hmm. on their own and so forth. So, but the idea is that, that on a minimum to start with, when I'm in the presence of another individual, I can invite openness in them. And part of that is by me receiving the, the feedback that they would offer again, despite how harsh it may or may not be, if I can invite that safety in them, and then the objective is to get everyone to a place where they can invite openness in others and receive difficult feedback from others. And this is, and I'm not even talking about anything on a, a personal or even a political level. I'm just talking about a professional level. Right. Let's talk about the quality of your code. Now, interestingly, if you can do that in the quality of your code and just talk about those conversations, it also translates into things that are on a personal level, political or what other different kinds of ideologies, right? So just that practice of being able to receive feedback and to invite feedback in up from others is a very good practice to get to help individuals to develop. I don't even want to use the term. It's not thicker skin. It's just, it's a, an appreciation for the way other individuals think and process information. I like it. So I, I guess, I mean, we've kind of talked through a lot of this stuff. Are, are there good resources for people to learn some of these techniques? Because it sounds like you've read a lot of books and gone through yeah, the process of learning this stuff. There are probably three books. I'll, I'll put them in order of importance or priority. There, there's a book I discovered years ago called Leadership and Self-Deception. Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. It's a narrative. It's a very fast read, about 200 pages, very quick read. It's a story format, but it beds the principles in the story um, and essentially is, is talking about, hey, 
there may be things that you're doing that are making things difficult for others. But here's the, here's the cool part about that. The moment you realize that, on the one hand, you go, oh man, I'm making things hard for people. But at the same time, you realize, wait a second, I can do something different. And all of a sudden it gives you the power instead of becoming like, oh, I don't know what to do in this situation. You start to realize, wow, there's so much I can do to help things get better in every facet of my life. So leadership, self-deception, I I recommend that very highly. Um, And a lot of the principles we've been discussing in this entire podcast are are very much all embedded throughout that book. So uh, the second one, um, uh, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, phenomenal book. It's been out, what, since uh, the the early 90s? Uh, When was it first published? Late 80s? Yeah. But again, a phenomenal book. The two fit together very well. And the, the third one I mentioned, Crucial Conversations, here's how to actually have the mechanics it is the mechanical side of how do I have a conversation that's going to be difficult, uh, opposing views, high stakes, you know, uh, strong emotions. How do you how do you hold those conversations uh, in a way that has a good outcome? So there are there are techniques that you can that you can employ to help things go better. So just those three books alone, uh, again, leadership, self deception, seven habits, and crucial conversations. As software developers, we deal with code, yes, but we really are dealing and interacting with people. And yep. so we, we do have to have a, a, a better understanding of how people operate in order to, to have better outcomes and more successful outcomes with them. Good deal. Well, I'm running up against a time commitment myself, so I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Um, if people want to connect with you online or you know, ask you questions about this stuff, h- how do they do that? Great. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, uh, Jonathan underscore Oliver. You can put that in the show notes. Jonathan at Smarty Streets. That's my work email there. You're welcome. To, we, we do street address verification software for, for uh, large e-commerce organizations. And by the way, it's been interesting to watch the amount of e-commerce been, that's been taking place over the last few uh, weeks and months. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, it's very significant. Uh, we're, we're at the center of that. But yeah, Jonathan at Smarty Streets is my email. uh, And then my Twitter handle, Jonathan underscore Oliver on, yeah, like I said, Twitter. So, and I'm on GitHub as well. So, yep, you're welcome to reach out with questions, anything like that. I'd be happy to answer. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Thanks again. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.